I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Yesterday, January 6th, 2021, a date which will live in constitutional history. The U.S. Congress ratified President-elect Biden's victory after a pro-Trump mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. On today's episode, we will reflect on the historic and constitutional significance of yesterday's events. I'm honored to be joined by two of America's leading constitutional scholars. Erwin Chemerinsky is Dean and Jesse H. Chopper Professor of Law at Berkeley Law. He was the founding dean of UC Irvine School of Law and is the author of many books, including We the People, a Progressive Reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century. Erwin, it is great to have you back on the show. It's always my great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. And Judge Michael Ludick was just named counselor and special advisor to the Coca-Cola Company. He previously served for 15 years as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Before that, he served as assistant attorney general and counselor to the attorney general at the U.S. Department of Justice and was assistant counsel to President Reagan. Mike, it is an honor to have you on the show. Thank you very, very much, Jeff, and, and I thank the National Constitution Center. It, it's an honor for me to be here with you, Jeff, a, a longtime and dear friend, and especially with Professor Erwin Chemerinsky. Um, both of you are giants in the law, and it's my pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you for that. Erwin, I'm going to begin with you. Is there any constitutional or historic precedent for yesterday's events? There is no precedent for what happened. Democracy is about the orderly transfer of power based on elections. Since John Adams, an incumbent president, lost in 1800, every time the incumbent has been defeated, there has been the peaceful transfer of power. Never before have we seen an incumbent who lost try to cling to the office in this way. Never before have we seen an incumbent president try to intimidate elected officials and election officials to change the results of the election. Never before have we seen an incumbent president try to have the results of the electoral college overturned. Never before have we seen an incumbent president engage in what we regarded as incitement. And the capital of the United States hasn't been breached since 1814, when it was burned by the British as part of the War of 1812. We shouldn't be inured to all of this. We've got to realize that what we've observed yesterday and over the last two months really is unprecedented in American history. Mike, I'm going to ask you the same question. Is there any precedent for yesterday's events? Uh, no, Jeff. Uh, um, Professor Chemerinsky is, is, of course, correct. Uh, but it's not just that it's unprecedented in American history. Um, what we've witnessed in the past uh, 24 hours is, to date, the ultimate test of our Constitution and, and of our, our democracy. It's nothing, nothing short of that, frankly. Uh, I believe that, that the professor and I will, will eventually uh, conclude that uh, uh, our Constitution and the American democracy 
uh, met the test, uh, but it, it was uh, a singular test, both of our Constitution and, and literally of the American uh, democratic system, Jeff. Well, let us examine the different constitutional aspects of yesterday's events. Erwin, some on both sides of the aisle have argued that President Trump incited an armed mob to insurrection. Do you agree with that definition? What is the legal test for incitement? And is that a fair statement or not? I think that the place to begin is with the legal test for incitement. It comes from a 1969 Supreme Court case, Brandenburg versus Ohio. And it says that incitement requires advocacy where there's a substantial likelihood of imminent illegal action and where the speech is directed at causing imminent illegal action. It is justifiably a very difficult standard to meet. And yet I think when you look at President Trump's words yesterday, Rudy Giuliani's words yesterday, and what preceded it, there certainly was a substantial likelihood of imminent illegal activity. I don't know whether or not President Trump had the intent to incite it, but remember he said January 6th was gonna be a wild day, and he certainly encouraged his followers to go to the Capitol. Whether he encouraged them to breach the Capitol in that way, whether that was that intent seems to me legally the much harder question. Uh, Judge Ludig, your thoughts on whether or not the president's words met the legal standards for incitement? I'm sorry, uh, Jeff, the question of whether uh, the, the president of the United States incited uh, the events of yesterday uh, in the technical sense is one that I'm going to demur on, uh, as the professor did. Uh, I'd say first that, that uh, were that question teed up, uh, you know, for constitutional decision, uh, it would make Brandenburg look like a, 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 an ordinary case and it would likely be the, uh, the landmark case in constitutional, in all of constitutional history. Uh, as Erwin uh, said, there, you know, there's no question that a case could be made, uh, uh, a technical case could be made that the president incited the events of yesterday. Uh, but as Erwin, as, uh, as uh, you know, uh, pointed out, uh, it would be most highly relevant uh, the president's intent, uh, and uh, I, I would not even attempt to uh, comment on on whether uh, the president's intent would satisfy the the, the the requirements for incitement. Erwin, in addition to the legal question of whether the president incited violence, there is a legal question about whether the people who participated in the armed assault of the Capitol were guilty of violating the prohibition against insurrection against the United States, articulated in the Smith Act and in other statutes. Can you tell our listeners whether you think there might be a legal case to be made against the armed mob, and, and more broadly, whether or not the legal requirements are met, how yesterday's events compare to previous examples of armed insurrection against the United States? Let's be clear that those who engaged in the violence at the Capitol violated the law and can be prosecuted for that. And that's unquestioned. Those who disobeyed the police, those who broke into the Capitol, those who defaced the Capitol violated many different laws. And those seem to be the easiest basis for prosecution. 
violence is never justified as a form of expression. Now to answer your specific question, again, I would start with the words of the statute. It says, whoever incites, sets on foot, assists or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States, the laws thereof, or gives aid or comfort thereto, is violated federal law. I think there's certainly an argument that what happened yesterday was a form of insurrection. Now, whether it's worth prosecuting that, given the other crimes, seems to me the difficult question. In terms of the Smith Act, it's about advocating the overthrow of the United States government. I don't think that's what was going on yesterday. Obviously, what they were trying to do was intimidate Congress and convey a message, but I don't know if that's the same as overthrowing the government. I'm always worried about federal prosecutors or state prosecutors overcharging crimes. Here, there's a lot of crimes that can be charged. I don't need think there's a need to reach for the Smith Act. Judge Ludig, uh, Irwin just quoted 18 U.S. Code 2383, whoever incites, sets, sets on foot, assists or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or gives aid or comfort thereto shall be fined or imprisoned. Your thoughts about whether the technical definition might be met and, and more broadly, you've, you've served in many branches of government in the executive branch and the Department of Justice. How should a prosecutor think about whether or not to prosecute the mob and which charges, if any, to bring? Uh, I, I don't believe that, that uh, uh, as Irwin does not believe, uh, that, that, that this should be prosecuted as a, an, an insurrection or effort to overthrow the United States government. It, it was not that. Um, on the other hand, uh, I don't uh, have any doubt that those people, the, at least who breached the Capitol... Uh, and entered and uh, 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 occupied the Capitol uh, should be prosecuted, uh, you know, to the fullest extent of the uh, number of laws uh, that they could be uh, prosecuted under. Uh, as to those people who uh, remained outside the Capitol uh, in mere protest, uh, assuming it was not it was not violent. I would not prosecute those people at all uh, on on the same basis I suggested, which is uh, I don't think there's enough uh, evidence uh, to satisfy the, the statute uh, that these people were, were attempting to overthrow uh, the United States government. Irwin, um, Facebook uh, today has blocked the president's account for two weeks, uh, Twitter for a period of time, which it may reexamine. Discuss the role of the social media companies in this mob activity. The president invited his supporters to Washington several weeks ago, and the coordination for the armed assault was made online. Are the social media companies applying the correct standards in deciding when and whether to block accounts? And, and more broadly, what are we learning about how online mobs can organize online and then take violent actions offline? To start with, as you and as I'm sure all the listeners know, the First Amendment doesn't apply to the choices of Facebook. The First Amendment limits only what the government can do. Facebook as a private company can make the choices it wants as to what will be on its platform. That said, I'm troubled by what Facebook did, though I understand why they did it. Social media was crucial in allowing this mob to form 
Social media was a basis that was for their incitement. And yet, I'm so worried when anyone, whether it's the government or a large company like Facebook, is censoring speech. I've always believed that the best remedy for the speech we don't like is more speech. And so in this instance, I'm troubled by what Facebook did, though I certainly believe they had the legal right to do it. Mike, your thoughts on Facebook's decision to block the president's account and the role of social media companies in this mob violence? Yeah, Jeff, uh, you know, all of us have, have struggled with this question uh, as it relates to the president of the United States for the past four years. Uh, and and it, is an, it is an agonizing uh, question of First Amendment law as it would relate to the, uh, the government, uh, but also as to the non-constitutional question as it relates to social media. Um, I, it is, let's begin by saying it, it, it is remarkable remarkable that anyone would censor statements by the President of the United States. Now, of course, the statements that have been made by this President of the United States for, for four years, and, and particularly over the past couple of weeks, are the statements that, that one might want to censor, even though they come from the President of the United States of America. Um, as to the media, uh, I have convinced myself, and I believe this is correct, that the media should never censor the statements of the President of the United States. And I really finally came to that conclusion yesterday uh, as I was watching the events unfold, watched the President-elect uh, make his statements to the nation and to the world, and then followed by uh, the, uh, the the video that the President of the United States released. Um, I think most people in America had the same reaction that I did to the to the President's video. But I thought to myself as I was uh, watching that uh, and, and listening in in rapt attention as the world did, could you imagine? And do we want to imagine uh, a country in which that? statement yesterday, dramatic, constitutional, historic statement would be censored by anyone at all. And, and, and I think for me that's unimaginable and I have essentially the same views as to that statement and like statements by the president for social media. Uh, as Erwin as points out, it's not for us to tell, tell Facebook and, and Twitter what, what to do, uh, but uh, it, it's inconceivable to me that they serve their uh, customers by censoring the statements of the President of the United States, Jeff. Thank you for grappling with that question so thoughtfully. Erwin, uh, not only the U.S. Capitol was assaulted yesterday, but state capitals across America who experienced similar violence. The mobs, armed mobs, who assembled across America were motivated by their belief that the election had in fact been stolen, reflecting a vision of reality that federal courts have almost unanimously rejected. What should we make of this armed uprising across America? 
And is there any role for courts, Congress, or the media, or the president in establishing reason rather than falsehoods? First, violence is never protected by the law and is never acceptable in a society governed by the rule of law. There's the right to have peaceful protests, but when people storm state capitals or the United States Capitol, they're violating the law and there's no First Amendment protection for such behavior. Second, it's crucial to note that every federal and state court, whether the judges were Republican or Democratic, rejected the claims of fraud. The Attorney General of the United States said there was no significant evidence of fraud. And I would even hope that the United States Supreme Court, in dismissing the remaining cases on its docket, would issue some kind of statement as part of the dismissal of cases, but the absence of evidence of fraud. There are millions of people who, notwithstanding this, believe that there was fraud, and I think we need to find a way to get the accurate information to them. And finally, we do have to be troubled by how false information can circulate over social media and the internet. The solution to that isn't censorship, but we do have to think about when cheap speech is so easy, when falsehoods can be so readily circulated, how do we make sure that true speech triumphs? And I think that's an enormously difficult question for the First Amendment and for our society. Thank you for putting the question so forcefully. How do we make sure that true speech triumphs over false speech? Mike, I'll ask you your thoughts about that question. How did the judiciary perform in establishing true speech rather than false speech? And given the First Amendment, what can be done to ensure that true speech triumphs? Uh, the, the judiciary performed its constitutional role throughout this, uh, Jeff, uh, supremely, if you will. Uh, and, and, and in the course of doing that, it did not, quote, adjudicate at any point uh, the public policy question that, that you raise, uh, nor should it have. Uh, so the courts rejected as uh, Irwin pointed out, uh, every claim of, of fraud, uh, as they properly should have done. Um, and, and then I would just, you know, uh, raise this interesting question for discussion, maybe today, probably not, but, but for, for the future. Um, you know, the president's claim was fraud throughout the entire post-election uh, uh, time period. Um, but what we saw yesterday in the president's longer statement uh, was, in my view, a, a, a very important shift in that, that extended letter, really. The, the and, and of course, the president didn't write this, and that's, that's really my point. It was his lawyers who wrote it. Uh, they did not claim that there was fraud in the 2020 election. As you know, Jeff and, and Professor, what, what, what the president claimed yesterday was that uh, the various states in question uh, had uh, promulgated their election rules unconstitutionally. That is, that the, the, the rules, the election rules 
in the various states that, to which he made reference, uh, promulgated their rules either through the courts or through uh, uh, administrative and political officials within the respective states rather than through the legislature. Now, that is, an, uh, that is an argument that, of course, that was raised first and foremost uh, post-election, and, and by the way, even pre-election, uh, because that was the uh, significant constitutional issue that was posed uh, uh, by the, uh, the litigation uh, that went to the Supreme Court of the United States in the Pennsylvania and Wisconsin uh, cases. Uh, that was the case that, that uh, the court initially uh, re rejected, de declined to decide 4-4, <laughs> uh, and that most of the country expected to return to the Supreme Court later for a final decision. I believe it would have come to that had Pennsylvania uh, been uh, a, a determinative state for the election, which in the, uh, eventually it was not. Uh, but it was, a, for history, it is significant what the president said yesterday to be his culminating argument. And it was not that there was fraud in the election, but instead it was the constitutional question that I just posed for you. Thank you for teeing that up, and it's well worth discussing. Um, Erwin, uh, Mike properly notes uh, the president yesterday and his lawyers previously before the Supreme Court, as well as Senators Hawley and Cruz in objecting to electoral votes, claim that, for example, Pennsylvania courts violated the Constitution when they created deadlines for the counting of mail-in ballots and said that it was the exclusive province of the legislature to do so. What do you make substantively of those arguments? And are the courts or Congress the right venue to resolve them? First, it was unnecessary in this election to resolve those issues. Let's take Pennsylvania. What was at stake was that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court extended the time for counting absentee ballots from November 3rd to November 6th. It involved 10,000 ballots that came in. They made no difference to the outcome of the Pennsylvania election, and that's why the Supreme Court didn't take up the case. The same thing was true with regard to Wisconsin. Second, on the merits, I disagree with the argument. The Constitution says that the state legislature makes the rules, but of course, any laws passed by a legislature are interpreted by the courts. In 2015, in a case called Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Redistricting Commission, the United States Supreme Court said, that legislature in this context refers to the lawmaking process of the state, not just the body, the legislature itself. Otherwise, it would say that courts can't declare state laws unconstitutional if they deal with the election, can't even interpret state laws that deal with the election. And so I don't think on the merits, it's a strong argument. But as I said, I think it's irrelevant here because it would make no difference in Pennsylvania or any other state. Mike, do you have anything to add about your thoughts about the merits of the uh, argument about Article 2? And then turn, if you will, to the question of whether you think that Congress, in counting electoral votes, has any role in adjudicating that question, or whether Congress's role is purely ministerial. Yes. As to the first, I, I was just going to say, Jeff, that it the Supreme Court 
properly did not decide the case for the reasons that that Irwin said. Um, but he, for your listeners, uh, this is an utterly fascinating constitutional question of the highest highest order. And uh, as as you know, and many of your listeners listeners know, the, you know there this was the concurrence in in Bush versus Gore, and uh, and then in this past uh, election cycle, both Justice Alito uh, and Justice Kavanaugh uh, broached the the issue with Justice Alito inviting it, uh, and then. Uh, and that was before uh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett w- was confirmed. Uh, and so I think most people who, who had studied the question seriously believed that there might well be five votes uh, had the question returned to the Supreme Court. Uh, and most people believed that uh, that was the issue at stake with Amy Coney Barrett's uh, um, confirmation. Uh, and in that regard, uh, I would just remind, m- remind you that I, I, I wrote, uh, based upon a Supreme Court opinion, that Justice Barrett would have to recuse herself or might have to recuse herself from that all-important constitutional question uh, had it returned to the Supreme Court. Uh, as to your second uh, uh, good question, uh, you know, this is, this is moving us uh, toward the 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 all important question of the vice president's role, which you'll get to, I'm sure, in in, in a moment. But you asked about the con- the Congress's role. Uh, of course, the Congress uh, d- does have a role, uh, and, and I'll call it a substantive role uh, in the 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 counting, if you will, of the electoral college votes. Uh, un- unlike, in my belief the vice president, for instance. So what, what Congress did you know, yesterday uh, was uh, debate and discuss the, 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 the issues surrounding uh, the election. That's their, that is their role. Uh, and uh, you know, had that discussion turned out differently, then the Congress could have played a role in the election of this president. Uh, but if, if, we, if we go back to, to the fundamental position uh, uh, that there was not sufficient, uh, and, I, and I'm going to say sufficient, uh, problems with the election, fraud in the elections, then there's no way that that discussion by the Congress could have ever led to Congress's involvement in the selection of, of the next president of the United States. Erwin, focusing on this question of Congress's substantive role in counting the ballots, in objecting to Arizona and Pennsylvania's certification, Senators Cruz and Hawley and others said that they wanted to create a commission to look into the question of fraud and then reconvene and decide whether or not to accept the votes certified by the states. Is that consistent with the 12th Amendment's instructions to Congress that the votes shall be counted? The president of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate, open the certificates and the votes shall be counted and the person having the greatest number of votes for president shall be the president? Or in the event that there is not more than one slate submitted by the states, do you believe that Congress has no 
substantive role to play in deciding whether or not to accept state certificates? Here, it's both the 12th Amendment and the Electoral County Act that govern how it's to be done. It's important to note the Electoral County Act says that if a state designates its electors by the designated date, which this year was December 8th, there is a safe harbor, and it's to be presumed that those electors will vote for the state in the Electoral College. The Electoral College met on December 12th, and it voted. There was no evidence that the Electoral College didn't comply with the Constitution or the Electoral County Act. There was no evidence found by any court to support there being fraud. There was no state where there were two sets of electors to choose among where there was a viable choice between them. And in fact, there's a procedure in the Electoral County Act where the governor gets to then have a role in resolving it. I could certainly imagine with different facts a role for Congress in holding an investigation. I could imagine with different facts a role for Congress to having to choose between competing sets of electors from a state. But it wasn't remotely close to that in these facts. Mike, any further comments that you have about whether or not the six or seven senators who objected to those two states acted consistently with the Constitution yesterday? And then turn to the second question, which you so importantly addressed in an op-ed of yours that was quoted by the vice president, and tell our listeners why you believe that the vice president has no substantive role to play beyond certifying the counting of the votes. Uh, sure, Jeff, you know, to be somewhat provocative on the first question, um, I believe that if it had been done in a timely fashion, that a commission could have been set up. Uh, but it probably would have had to be set up not just in a timely fashion, but completed its work, whatever that work was, in a timely fashion as well. Because uh, as Erwin points out, you know, there are time uh, limits for these various acts that are constitutionally prescribed. And, and, and the Senate or the Congress would not have the constitutional power to uh, uh, exceed those time limitations, for instance. Uh, I would say bracketed in, in this event at least by the inauguration date set forth in, in, in the Constitution. But uh, then the provocative point I would make is that assuming that that uh, was not permitted, the interesting question for me, and I don't think the country will ever get to it, is whether the Supreme Court of the United States would adjudicate that question. And I don't think it ever would. Uh, if, if you want me to, to turn then to the uh, what, in my view, is the largest question of the day, uh, I will, Jeff. Please do. The, you know, and that question, uh, uh, listeners, is the, the obvious one, and that is the, the role of the vice president uh, yesterday uh, in the counting of the Electoral College votes. Um, this is not just, you know, a monumentally important constitutional question, never before thought to be such, I should add, uh, but was made such uh, by the historic, historic moment that uh, Vice President Pence was put in by his president. So to review the bidding, as it were, you know, we have the President of the United States of America demanding that his vice president challenge and reject 
certain of the Electoral College votes. Talk about historic. Never before in history. I suspect never again in history. But all of us just should focus and concentrate on the position that the Vice President of the United States of America was in yesterday. It's excruciating political, constitutional, and historic pressure, unlike any pressure that could be put on the president or certainly the vice president of the United States. Uh, And it was all on the vice president's shoulders alone. And and, and everyone knows the fascinating uh, discussion of what we know now as to what occurred between the two men, literally leading up to the moments that the the vice president uh, left to to, uh, travel to Capitol Hill. But in any event, on the issue, uh, um, I did make a statement uh, uh, through Twitter that outlined, in my view, the the constitutional imperative on the vice president of of the United States. Uh, And and I said uh, what I believe to be the correct constitutional position that the the vice president, uh, I will not say performs only a ceremonial role, because I think it's more than that. But that I, I said, under the Constitution, he, he does not have a larger power than to count the electoral college votes as they were cast by, by the respective states. And then to, uh, to my great surprise, but great personal honor, uh, Jeff and, and, and Professor, the Vice President of the United States cited um, my analysis, if you will, uh, in his letter to the nation, uh, explaining what he would do yesterday, and of course what he did do. Again, I don't, never before in history, and I don't believe ever again in history will the country be faced with that issue. Erwin, do you agree with Judge Ludic's conclusion, which he shared in the way he described, that the only responsibility and power of the vice president under the Constitution is to faithfully count the electoral votes as they have been cast, as his statement began. And then more broadly, how how do you evaluate the conduct of Vice President Pence during this remarkable events of the past few days? I completely agree with Judge Ludig's analysis of the role of the vice president. It's an important role But under the Constitution, under the Electoral County Act, the vice president has no authority to reject the electors of a state. I also share his admiration for how the vice president performed here. It's hard to imagine the pressure that he was under from the president of the United States to reject the results of the Electoral College. Of course, had he done so, he would have remained vice president of the United States. So there was a personal incentive to do that. And yet in this regard, I would say he was a profile of courage. He followed the Constitution and the law, and we should all admire him for what he did. Judge, what are the remaining legal and constitutional questions, if any, for us to discuss? Should there be any punishment for either the president or the mob, um, or should the country simply move on? 
I, I, I think that uh, I'll take the liberty to, to confine myself to the second question, uh, uh, Jeff. I think we've, we've, uh, we've uh, addressed and certainly touched upon the, the, the first. Um, and of course, the second is the, the most serious uh, of all. Um, in addressing that, I, I would first footnote the, a large constitutional question remaining and one that is probably uh, more uh, alive and vibrant today than it was yesterday. And that's whether the president has the authority to pardon himself uh, as he leaves the Oval Office. Perhaps you could express your views about that because you've expressed them eloquently and our, our leaders would benefit from hearing them. Yes. Uh, uh, as you know, I, I, uh, I wrote on this issue as well. Uh, long before today, uh, but I did uh, say that the, the president does not have the authority under the Constitution to pardon himself. That is a question that, that reasonable scholars uh, could disagree with me over. Uh, the, the, the contrary argument, which has long been held by most people who never had the occasion to think much about it, uh, was that uh, uh, because the, 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 the language of, of the pardon clause uh, is so expansive uh, and seemingly limitless, uh, believed that the President of the United States could pardon himself. So uh, uh, I did take a, uh, I guess you, what you could call a provocative position on that as well. And I wasn't writing as a, uh, as a scholar. I was uh, I was writing uh, as if I were a, a federal judge deciding that, uh, that constitutional question. Uh, and, uh, and, and as you know, I, uh, I parsed that seemingly um, uh, limitless, expansive uh, constitutional text uh, in, in, in the way that, that, that you, Jeff, know I do, uh, and, uh, and concluded that the, the text was at the very least ambiguous on the question whether the president could pardon himself. And as I ultimately concluded, it was less ambiguous even than that, such that uh, if I were to interpret the clause, I, I would interpret it so as not to, to, to permit the president to pardon himself. But, but to go, you know, just and tee it up for you or, or Irwin, uh, this is going to be a, a monumentally important question. Uh, I think most people today, and, and, as, and again, most people today, as opposed to yesterday, would believe that the president will be tempted to pardon himself on the way out the door. Erwin, your thoughts about whether or not the president can pardon himself? I completely agree with Mike here, too. The language of Article 2 says the president can grant pardons. That implies that it's something bestowed on another. If you look at the pardon power in Anglo-American history or world history, it's always something that's been bestowed on another. Even more important to me, the Constitution is about the rule of law. And the core of the rule of law is that no one not even the president is above the law. If the president can pardon himself, 
for any federal crimes, then the president can place himself above the law. And I don't think the Constitution can allow that. Well, Mike, then let's focus on this crucially important, the the most important question. Uh, How can the rule of law be preserved moving forward? And you began by saying that you believe that in the end, so far, yesterday, January 6th, 2021, the rule of law won. Tell us why that's the case and how the rule of law can continue to win moving forward. Uh, well, to answer that, the, the first question first, Jeff, uh, uh, and, and simply, the President of the United States did not prevail before the courts of the United States and therefore before the nation in his baseless claims of fraud uh, in, in the 2020 election. Um, second, putting aside the question of, of his technical incitement of the events of yesterday, he wanted that the events of yesterday to occur, not, we will assume, in, 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 to their extent or, or in their magnitude, of, of course. But he wanted his own vice president to reject the Electoral College votes. And he wanted the Congress of the United States to declare him the next president of of the United States as well. That did not happen. So this was, as I mentioned at the beginning, in my view, the the ultimate test of, of our Constitution and literally of, of the American democratic system. Uh, it was messy. It was maybe we can say it could have been successful. We could say it might have been successful. But I will drop another footnote here, too. If it would have been successful, it was not successful in the end of the day because of the historic profile and courage, as Irwin called it, of the Vice President of the United States. He alone yesterday had the power, an awesome power beyond our comprehension until yesterday, to have, you know, and and I I will be careful about the word, but... um, I will not say to have brought down the American democratic system, but to have seriously impaired it going forward in a way and to a degree that I don't believe that our democracy could have ever recovered. So that's the way I I would answer that, Jeff. Erwin, do you agree that the rule of law prevailed yesterday? And if so, what institutions uh, would you credit for that? Uh, Mike has mentioned the role of the vice president. There were others ranging from state election officials to federal and state judges. If the rule of law and the Constitution prevailed, why do you think that was? I think that the rule of law did triumph. I think there was an unprecedented assault on the rule of law. There was an effort by the president of the United States to undo the results of a popular election and the results of the Electoral College. There's an effort by the President of the United States to stay in power 
even though the democratic process had rejected that. But ultimately, the rule of law triumphed, and it triumphed the last couple of months. To go back, the election was held in the midst of a pandemic, and yet there was record turnout and no evidence of fraud, no evidence of foreign influence. Elected officials, Democratic and Republican, accurately counted the votes, and they refused to change the count, even when pressured by the President of the United States. The judges, Democrat and Republican, stayed in federal, listened to the evidence and arguments, and concluded that there was no evidence of fraud and there was no legal claim for overturning the election. And yesterday, the overwhelming number of congressmen and congresswomen and senators, Democratic and Republican, followed the Constitution and followed the Electoral College Act, Electoral Act, and deemed Joe Biden to be the next president of the United States. That's Jeff Wise say the rule of law triumphed. The guardrails of democracy were challenged and pushed more than ever before, but thankfully they held. Mike. Are there any other ways in which the Constitution and the institutions that it created triumphed? Well, Jeff, the courts of the United States, including most importantly, the Supreme Court of the United States. But in the end, the Congress of the United States as well. And then with a footnote, provocative footnote to to follow, the presidency prevailed as well. The footnote that I want to raise, and of course we can't discuss it today, was the apparent decision by the U.S. uh, uh, military to uh, dispatch the uh, National Guard, a decision that seems to have been made by the Vice President of the United States, not the President of the United States. So the presidency, all of the Uh, the tripartite system of our government, they did triumph, and in the ways that Erwin and I have discussed. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this remarkable discussion. Erwin, can you share with our listeners what you think are the constitutional lessons we've learned from the historic events of January 6th, 2021? I just want to thank you and Mike for this wonderful discussion. I'm so honored to be part of it. Democracies are there until they're not. No form of government lasts forever. I never imagined that in my lifetime there'd be such a serious threat to American democracy as we've seen over the last couple of months and especially yesterday. But ultimately the guardrails worked, the constitution and federal laws were followed. And yet I worry, what if there had been significant evidence of fraud in this election? What if it had been a much closer election than it actually was? What if some of the election officials caved to pressure from the president and others? What if the courts hadn't fulfilled their function? What if our democracy survived? I hope very much we never see anything like this again. But ultimately what this reflected is we are a very polarized society. And what's so important is how do we come together? Uh, Judge Ludig, the last word is to you. What are the constitutional lessons of the crisis of January 6th, 2021. Uh, I would just leave, you know, uh, the discussion with that last footnote because the commander-in-chief is the individual constitutionally who has the authority 
to deploy the National Guard as well as the, the United States military. Uh, this is an open question of some magnitude, to say the least, and, and we're going to have to get our arms around that. And then finally, I would just say not to create uh, more work for you, Jeff Rosen, or the National Constitution uh, Center, but you know, this is a moment in time in our history where we have to have an after-the-fact reconciliation of, of all of this, particularly those of us and you who are concerned most with the Constitution. Uh, and I can think of no one better to undertake that uh, historic review, overview, analysis, and thinking uh, than, uh, than the center, Jeff. Thank you so much, Erwin Chemerinsky and Michael Ludig, for a principled, sober, and illuminating discussion of one of the greatest challenges to the U.S. Constitution that any of us has ever experienced. The National Constitution Center will continue to convene discussions like this as part of the urgently important project of educating Americans about the U.S. Constitution so that we can preserve, protect, and defend it. Dean Chemerinsky, Judge Ludig, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for including me. Jeff, thank you and thank the center. It's been my honor. Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott and engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Mac Taylor and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone in America or around the globe who is trying to make sense of the extraordinary constitutional events that the nation is confronting. And thank you so much for learning with us, and thank you for listening thoughtfully to scholars and Americans of diverse perspectives as together we attempt to grow in wisdom about the great document of human freedom and equality that unites us, the U.S. Constitution. Always remember that the Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, engagement, and passion of people from around the country, learners in the Republic of Reason like you were devoted to civil dialogue and education about the Constitution. Please do support our mission mostly by listening, by letting me know what the podcast means to you, and of course, by engaging with the Constitution Center. You can support us by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. The work is so important, and all of us at We the People are so grateful to you for being part of it. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.